0: Today on Ag News Daily.
1: Uh, the EU intervention stocks that have really been depressing powder uh, prices for a considerable period of time have finally worked their way through the system.
0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Wednesday here on the Ag News Daily podcast. Delaney Howell joined by my co-host, Mike Pearson.
2: Good afternoon, Delaney Howell. I tell you what, there is not much happening on the news front in regards to agriculture today. Most of the headlines are tied up with this President Trump impeachment battle that is ongoing in Washington, D.C.
0: Yeah, and it's a slow week, I think, because we're heading into the Thanksgiving recess next week, so things are really winding down this week, it seems.
2: They are. But nonetheless, we still have news that impacts the world of agriculture. Delaney, what are some of the headlines that you're watching today?
0: You know, one of the headlines I'm watching, and I think you brought it up yesterday on the podcast, Mike, and that's just what's going on in the biodiesel industry as related to the biodiesel tax credits. So we are currently seeing the Democrats propose a new five year extension of biodiesel tax credits which would include a $1 a gallon subsidy for biodiesel. And they're kind of doing what the ethanol industry was trying to do and like accounting for some of those years that didn't get any sort of a tax break or tax incentive. And so it really seems like they're trying to roll back here for a couple of years. Um, so they're putting together a plan that would account for 2018 through 2021 and then also, as I kind of understand it, um, basically phase this out over the next 10 years or so.
2: Okay. All right, so it's a 10-year-ish program. Right.
0: But they're also, like, kind of backtracking what's been happening. or the bi- So, it, it basically, the subsidy lapsed at the start of 2018. So, they're going to go back, it sounds like, and make up for that lapse in in credits because we've seen about 10 biodiesel plants either go out of business or idle this year after that subsidy lapsed Uh, so we're looking now at seeing some extenders and things going kind of backtracking to make up for that
2: gotcha Gotcha. All right. Well, folks, pay attention to that. Biodiesel, of course, is a great consumer of soybean oil, which when our crush is as strong as it is, mainly driven by meal demand, we got to have a place to go for that oil. we got to have something to do with it because that is a crucial co-product of soybeans, and uh, biodiesel makes a great home for it.
0: That it does.
2: Well, Delaney, while we're talking about renewable fuels news, we've got some positive news. Uh, Growth Energy announced that um, E15 sales over the summer in 2019 were 46% higher than they were over the summer in 2018 on a per-store basis. So basically what they're saying is that uh, not only are consumers kind of getting a little more comfortable with the, the – uh, oh, gosh, with the the blue – the blue pump the blue hose i should say they are starting to use it more they're recognizing those cost savings additionally they saw the number of retail stores offering e15 jumped 149 stores over the summer months so that was the first time that uh this has been really available without restriction and it's nice to see it's catching on
0: all right Well, Mike, another topic that we've been continuing to discuss here on the podcast, especially in light of the recent banking conference that went on last week, is really what's going on in the farm credit sector and the health of the rural economy. So the Farm Credit Administration told House Agriculture Committee folks on Tuesday that the farm lending system is currently safe and sound, so they're not Extremely worried, but they are very concerned and closely monitoring some weakening conditions in credit quality. They said that they think we're at levels comparable to the early 80s, and they've seen a rising debt-to-asset ratio and concerns about farmland values. And so really the only thing right now that continues to keep us out of those 80s trends altogether are that farmland values remain largely stable across the country. But they said this is something they're watching. They've definitely written some warning marks to folks, especially as we see declining balance sheets this year with uh, so many factors that producers just cannot control
2: yeah you know it's interesting over the past three weeks it sounds like we've been hearing alarm bells really ringing from the ag finance community i mean between the st louis uh, feds report this report the american ag lenders or the uh, the aba ag bankers american bankers association ag lenders uh conference i mean man it does sound like folks are really starting to take this thing seriously
0: yeah it really does so something we'll have to keep an eye on Little scary, but
2: uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's scary, and it's certainly scary and stressful for a lot of those growers who are in the position of seeing their balance sheets deteriorate. And hopefully, this will uh, hopefully there will be some reprieve before too long.
0: Yeah, and for those folks who did not listen to yesterday's Tech Tuesday episode, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to at least the interview portion because the company we discussed or that I interviewed yesterday. Grainbridge is working on a new technology for specifically grain producers at this point in time, but kind of an end-all system to put in costs, to put in a profit-loss statement to help generate that for you, but then also trying to figure out, you know, okay, when we hit this price point, we need to sell our crop because we're going to be at a break-even or we're going to make X percent or whatever. And it just connects you easier with those local folks to get those cash bids in your area.
2: Yeah, check that out. Be sure to tune in and listen. Um, We've got some other news coming out of Georgia. Of course, Hurricane Michael tore through southwest Georgia last year. We talked quite a bit about the impact to the pecan industry. That famous nut that this time of year, of course, gets featured on a lot of pies on the Thanksgiving table. And pecan growers have bounced back quite a bit over the past year. But production is still expected to be about half of typical pecan production. Ordinarily, farmers would harvest between 1,300 and 1,400 pounds of pecans per acre. And uh, they they expect it. Well, right now it's running at about half. And they expect that number to decrease as additional fields get harvested, mainly due to tree losses in a lot of these uh, pecan orchards.
0: I think that's maybe a good and a bad because I think China, for one, is a big pecan grow or pick on consumer so you know i'm sure that their price has been pretty impacted by the chinese trade war so i don't know if these two things will counterbalance each other or not
2: well yeah i guess i don't know either but uh, they did say it's going to take several years for growers to really recover and get that harvest pace back up to where it was pre-hurricane michael right what other headlines are jumping out at you delaney howell
0: Uh, The other big headline that is jumping out at me today is good news on the Japanese trade front. The lower house of Japan's parliament voted on Tuesday to approve this initial or partial U.S. trade deal that would slash tariffs and set up new quotas for U.S. farm goods, according to reports out of Tokyo. So we've seen it now passed by the lower house and it is now being sent to the upper house of Japan's parliament And so they're hopeful we'll see a quick vote there. And a full ratification will absolutely allow this to go into effect in January.
2: All right. Great news there. At least we're getting some certainty. That is uh, going to be well regarded by the markets once everything gets signed, sealed, and delivered.
0: Yeah, you know, I'd be interested to learn if the markets have already factored this in or is the market going to factor this in? Is it a big enough marketplace or a big enough agreement for us to see any sort of positive sentiment added into the markets
2: you know i think we did i think we added in some positive sentiment especially in the protein markets earlier in the year when this was effectively agreed to so probably won't see a huge bounce when the uh, the signatures are are done but if japan steps up and starts making purchases we'll see we'll see that reflected in prices over the next several years
0: absolutely especially probably for our beef producing friends
2: Exactly, exactly that was the that's where the the optimism really lies,
0: mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit for wheat producers too, I would say,
2: yeah, yeah, I think you're right, Delaney. There were definitely some provisions for wheat, and I believe dairy also yes. received some favorable provisions in this new trade agreement, so we'll absolutely. see how they all pan out
0: absolutely, and that's very fitting because for our interview portion of today's podcast, we're going to be hearing from former Secretary of Agriculture. Tom Vilsack, who's, of course, now with the U.S. Dairy Export Council to talk about dairy and trade and a bunch of other factors going on right now.
2: Fantastic. Before we get into that, I do just have one other trade story to bring to folks' attention. Um, Of course, we are continuing to battle China in this 18-month-long trade war. You know, we had been thinking maybe we'd get phase one of an agreement signed and put together. Initially, by about a week ago, and it hasn't happened. And now Reuters reported earlier today that perhaps phase one might not be signed until 2020. Mm -hmm. So it's getting kicked off even further into the future. One of the complicating factors is that uh, earlier today, the U.S. International Trade Commission said it determined that U.S. industry was materially injured by imports of aluminum wire and cable from China. And that we should be locking in U.S. anti-dumping and countervailing duties. Um, Basically, we imported about $115 million worth of aluminum wire and cable in 2018, and the ITC said they are going to release a public report on this investigation backing the Commerce Department's finding that we should be putting additional tariffs on chinese aluminum wire and cable which i'm sure the, the chinese will certainly balk at yeah as these uh, negotiations continue to move forward
0: i can't imagine they'll be uh, real keen on that but i don't think the 2020 thing surprises me or you probably because it's unfortunately i, I feel like it's gonna just get kicked until the elections are over
2: yeah Yep. I think. And, and then I think my you're concern exactly is right.
0: if President Trump gets reelected, do we see them wait another four years or have things gotten dire enough that they'll be willing to come to the table then?
2: Yeah. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll see if they are going to come to the table. Absolutely. Well, let's see. That wraps up my news, Delaney Howell. What uh, what other news do you have?
0: I am out as well.
2: All right, well, let's jump into the markets and see where prices closed for the day. We had weakness in corn and soybeans, strength continuing in the wheat market. In corn, the December contract dropped 3.5 cents to finish at 3.66 and a half. The March contract, down 3.5 as well, closed the day at 3.77 and a quarter. In soybeans, the January contract dropped 6.5 cents to finish the day at 9.05 even. The March... Down five and a quarter, finished the day at nine nineteen and a quarter. Looking at Chicago wheat, the December contract was up three and a half cents at five fifteen and a half. The March up three and a quarter, finished the day at five eighteen and a half. Looking over at the world of livestock, we've got strength in live cattle with the December contract up fifty two and a half cents to close at one nineteen thirty. February up forty two and a half to finish the day at one twenty five forty seven fifty. Mixed trade in feeder cattle with the January contract up a nickel to close at one forty four. 50. The March, down 32.5 cents, finished the day at 144.15. And in lean hogs, a big weakness today. The December contract was down $1.70, it was 60.45. February, down $2.85 to close the day at 66.77.50 quick look over at the dairy industry in class three milk that november contract was up two cents on the day at 2034 the december up a nickel to finish at 1844 with that out of the way delaney let's kick it off to tom Bilzek and the conversation you had with him down at nafb
1: let me start with what i expect will occur within the next 30 days which is the approval by the japanese diet of the mini agreement that was negotiated by the administration, the good news is uh, that we have an agreement. It's going to allow us to avoid what we have been seeing in this market, which was a, uh, a challenge for us in the powder market in Japanese and in, in Japan. Uh, our friends in the EU and our friends in New Zealand, who are our competitors, had the benefit of free trade agreements that basically eliminated tariffs. When we pulled out of TPP, we lost that advantage, uh, and they've taken advantage. Uh, of that tariff differential and have been selling more product in this market this Japanese agreement will allow us to get uh, at the same level as they are so we will be much more competitive on powder our cheese sales uh, in Japan were continuing to go up Uh, this agreement will guarantee uh, that we won't have a tariff differential with our friends in the EU Uh, and of course we will make sure that we tell uh, our friends in Japan and around the world that we had 131 medals at the most recent cheese uh, awards And then we shocked the French and everybody else by having uh, the best cheese in the world. Rogue Creamery from Oregon, uh, with their blue, uh, essentially became known as the best cheese. And uh, if you haven't tried that, by the way, it is really good. Uh, But there are 131 medals, um, which uh, seven super gold, 17 gold, 40 silver, and, and 67 bronze medals. That's the highest number of medals we've ever received in international competition. And the word's getting out. Uh, that u s is producing some really high quality cheeses uh, Indonesia, a new opportunity for us, uh, one that you wouldn 't necessarily think of. But it turns out that the EU, uh, that the Indonesians were buying a lot of product, a lot of dairy product from the EU. Uh, the EU has raised concerns about palm oil production in Indonesia uh, and the impact it 's having on the climate. Uh, so the Indonesians have decided that in response to the uh, to the uh, negative comments uh, by their European friends, about palm oil, that they're going to start looking at buying uh, dairy products from the U.S. Uh, Undersecretary McKinney led a delegation of uh, a number of representatives from the dairy industry to Indonesia uh, on very quick notice, and we appreciate the Undersecretary's work here. Matt McKnight from our, our shop, the CEO, went, uh, and I think we're going to see a lot of increased activity in Indonesia. I've talked about China and whey permeate. Uh, the EU intervention stocks, that had really been depressing powder uh, prices for a considerable period of time have finally worked their way through the system, uh, so we should see uh, some uptick there. Uh, I believe that USMCA is going to get ratified, uh, uh, and that of course will open up opportunities in Canada. And it will also result in elimination of Class Seven, uh, which of course will uh, assist us as well in, in uh, maintaining a, a decent price for powder. I've mentioned the Center of Dairy Excellence, and again we have a great story to tell. Uh, One where we can talk about the nutritional and versatility, uh, uh, nutritional value and versatility of U.S. dairy, Uh, the amazing environmental story that we have in terms of our producers and greenhouse gas reductions, best in the world. Uh, Animal care with internationally certified standard, uh, and and incredible quality. And our industry continues to innovate. So I'm optimistic about the future. Uh, I'm looking forward to 2020 uh, and and the opening of our uh, Center of Dairy Excellence and continuing to sell uh, more. US dairy around the world. Open it up to every questions from anybody but the young lady in the back. Mr. Secretary, yesterday Senator McConnell said for the congressional record that there are 12, let's see, 12 million jobs across all industries in the US that are dependent on trade with Canada and Mexico. If you were a betting man, when do you expect USMCA passage? Well, I am a betting man, um, and uh, I believe it will be passed before the end. I've been saying this for about nine months, the end of the year. So, you know, it, my experience with these these things is that Congress works on a deadline, and the best deadline in the world is that Christmas holiday, you get out of town deadline. So I, my guess is... Um, <coughs> There's going to be continued uh, interest in getting this on up to up for vote. And when it gets up for vote, it's going to pass, pass the House, and it'll easily pass the Senate. So I think – and, you know, here's the thing. Uh, USMC is clearly better for a lot of industries and certainly better for the dairy industry uh, than NAFTA. Uh, it's better because uh, we have GI – a side letter on GIs with Mexico. We, we have – bit more market access with Canada that we don't have to share with the rest of the world, and we have an end to this Class Seven uh, pricing system that's distorted the powder market. So it's clearly better for us. The key question, though, in any trade agreement, and, and it's one of the reasons why uh, we're seeing a delay in, in Phase one of the China agreement, is, is it enforceable? What are the mechanisms for enforcing it, right? So there are some in Congress who legitimately believe that trade agreements in the past have caused us jobs, so they want to make sure that if labor standards in Mexico are going to improve, that actually there's some teeth to that, right? So they're going about the business of ensuring that Mexico's serious about this, that they're budgeting adequate resources to enforce it, that they have the laws on the books that are necessary to increase the labor standards, environmental standards. And that's, that's a legitimate concern, because a trade agreement that's not enforceable isn't worth much. Uh, and I think eventually um, – the steps that have been taken and continue to be taken to reassure members of Congress that we'll get to a point where 218 members of, of that body believe that this is a better deal than NAFTA and that it's enforceable. And they'll signal that to the Speaker. The Speaker will signal to the administration, and the administration will send the language that has to be sent before a vote could be taken. That language hasn't been sent yet because the administration is waiting for the signal, right? So – and I think the Senate is fully prepared to move expeditiously to get, its, get it resolved. So I think – If they get resolution on these issues of enforcement sometime in this month, uh, and then they've got the holiday coming up, that's a really good time to force people to take a vote before they get out of town. You don't want this thing bleeding over in 2020 because that becomes involved in presidential politics, and you don't want that. Mr. Secretary, uh, I'm kind of wondering, you know, and just to go back and revisit the, the nutritional aspect of, of not just dairy but of all foods, you know, mm-hmm. and what happened in the 80s and the 90s, get rid of fats and other such as sundry items. The new conversation we're having today about nutrition, if you see that as being a positive going forward in looking at terms of milk and the whole nutritional profile of fluid milk versus that of 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 the plant base or even looking at things like butters and cheeses, you know And and the nutritional aspect that finally people are coming around to is thinking You know this food isn't really as bad as we thought it was and actually has real value Is that going to be a cornerstone of how the industry could prosper going forward? Well, that's part of it, and, and I think we're we're seeing the benefit back to the checkoff program Chekhov basically funded the research that got us to a point where people began to realize butter, fat, cheese, and so forth wasn't necessarily as harmful as it initially had been suggested. We now have margarine-type products trying to relabel themselves as butter because it's a you know it's a it's a it's a healthy choice. So I think we need to continue to research and we need to com- continue to communicate, but we have to do one other thing, and that is we have to recognize where the future is headed. So the future is headed to a point where every single person in this room will become an individual consumer with an individual nutritional profile. I, for one, hope that my profile shows that I need to consume lots of sugar, but I suspect that's probably not what it's gonna do. But the reality is you know, with genetics and with biomes and, ge- and all that science, we're gonna know a lot more about us as individuals, which is gonna place a premium on the food industry and agriculture to specifically design foods that speak specifically to your nutritional profile. And consumers are going to be more aware and more demanding of that, certainly in a developed country like the U.S. What we need to do is we need to make sure we're we're working lockstep with that nutritional advancement, that we make sure that our regulatory systems keep pace with it. And this is a really big issue, and that is that our regulatory systems really are not geared towards keeping pace with this accelerated pace of change. They're just not. And I'll give you an example on the dairy side. We've got this feed additive that will reduce methane by 30% front end of the cow just by adding this substance. It's an enzyme, I think, to, to feed. Our competitors, EU, New Zealand, are going to have this in their feed supply sooner than we are because our FDA is going through a process of treating this as a pharmaceutical product, which means it has to go through a whole series of tests and It's expensive, and it takes years. We can't have that. We've got to figure out a way to accelerate. Without sacrificing the quality of our research and regulatory systems, we have to figure out how to accelerate this, right? So that we're always in a position that when new information comes out, and I learn something more about myself, and I learn that some things in that grocery store I really should consume, and some things I need to stay away from, or that the industry needs to innovate those things that I really want to eat, but I can't. And that's what we're seeing with milk. We're beginning to see that with protein, and these protein shakes, and the whey protein, and the powders, and so forth. We're beginning to realize, hey, this protein's a good thing, and it can come in different forms, and it's a new market opportunity. So to me, I think the nutrition thing is just going to enhance in significance in developed countries, and over time... Uh, we'll we'll see that in developing countries as well. So we have kind of two tracks here. We have domestic keeping pace with the sophisticated science that we're going to be confronted with. At the same time, understanding that developing countries, it's going to take them a while to get to that point. They're just going to need milk. They're just going to need cheese. They're just going to need product. So we need to be able to be an industry that can focus on both.
0: Uh, During your time as Act Secretary, what are you proudest of? while you were U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. And the second part of that is, you know, you've worked for agriculture your whole life. Is there anything uh, on your bucket list or anything that you would hope to see happen for U.S. agriculture?
1: Um, if any of you have been to Washington, D.C., you know at the, at the, at the uh, department they have portraits that they do of you. And uh, I had this fabulous artist come to my office to do my portrait, and, frankly, it's something I just absolutely hated. I didn't want to do it, wasn't interested in doing it, never liked anything that's ever been taken of me. But I said to her, I said, you know, I, I want it a little bit different than the portraits downstairs because these are all wonderful men and a few, a woman or two. Nice folks, real good people, committed, dedicated, but there's nothing there. I mean, there's just a picture of a guy standing, and, I mean, Dan Glickman's got a little activity going on in his. And I said, I want to reflect the work that's done here. And so if you look at my portrait, there's a whole bunch of stuff in my portrait that reflects the work that was done. So it's really hard for me, and the reason I'm giving you this preface is it's really hard for me to answer that question because we did a lot, I thought. I think we did. You know, I'm really proud of... Um, the work we did in advancing the bio-based manufacturing opportunities, because that, that, that's an extension of what I've talked about earlier today. I'm really proud of the stuff that we did um, on, on the nutrition side. I'm proud of uh, the work we did in creating f- local and regional food systems that complemented production agriculture. Um, I'm proud of what we did in the Forest Service, where we um, created a, a unique partnership out west uh, with a Forest to Faucets with uh, Colorado. As we're dealing with uh, scarce water resources, um, you know it, it was a it's it's a great it's a great job. Sonny produced the luckiest guy in Washington, definitely now the luckiest guy in Washington. Uh, he's got a great job. It's dedicated people, and it and it and it You know, I used to say I, I could go anywhere in the country, legitimately as a cabinet secretary. I could go to any city, any small town, any farm, legitimately. Now you know if I was a commerce secretary. I might have a hard time explaining why I was on a farm, maybe. If I was a transportation guy, I'd have a really hard time explaining why I was in a school. Not the Secretary of Agriculture. You could be anywhere. And then, on top of that, you could be really anywhere in the world. So it's a fabulous job. And so I, I just, you know, I'm just proud of the work that the 95 to 100,000 people did when I was there. Um, and uh, just feel inc- incredibly privileged and honored to have had the job. But always remind myself that if my mom and dad were alive today and known that I had been Secretary of Agriculture for eight years, they would have thought the country really truly had gone to hell. (laughs) Uh, And I'm pretty sure when Christy said I do 47 years ago, uh, she never expected she was marrying the future. She she often told the story. She came in one day at the, the law office where I practiced law with her dad. And I was doing tax returns, and we were talking about pigs on sal. We were talking about the the, the uh, depreciation of uh, certain livestock, and she she was sort of marveled at the fact that I was that stuff was rolling off my tongue as a kid from Pittsburgh. Um, you know, it's 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 a great life. I've been really really lucky, um, and now I've forgotten the second part of your question. And what what do you hope? What, well, hope? Uh, the hope the hope, truly. Uh, so I, when I practiced law, I practiced law early 70, mid 70s, 80s. Similar to some of the experiences we've seen recently. Ironically, I started my my governorship in Iowa with a letter from a woman from Council Bluffs whose husband had committed suicide when hog prices went down to nine bucks. Can you remember that time? It's interesting. I went to a National Governors Association meeting, and the, the, the moderator asked us. we had just been newly elected governors. They asked us, and I was sitting next to Jesse Ventura, so that'll tell you where this is headed. They asked us what, what, what we were proudest of. <laughs> I'd only been governor for two months. I thought, well, this is a ridiculous question. I, so I said, I've only been governor for two months. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to read you this letter that I got from this woman. Um, about five days later staff walks into my office and says, Governor, what, what do you want us to do with this check that came in the mail? And I said, what check? He says, it's a check for $10,000. I said, well, who, what is it? Is it? They, the, the person who sent this anonymously wants to donate it to the family that you talked about because it was written about in the Washington Post. So I gave it to the woman, got her into the office, gave it to her. She was crying, little kids. Eight years later, when I was leaving the office, she came back, and her kids were about ready to head into community college, she had invested that $10,000 and was going to pay for the college education I became Secretary of Agriculture and the first thing that confronted me as Secretary of Agriculture was a family dairy. dairy dairy prices were really, really, really low in 2009 and another family the farmer had committed suicide practice in law during the 80s had a client comes into my office and he says uh, they're taking my farm So we started talking about his farm operation, and he had seven sons, and and six sons, first six sons, doctors, lawyers, engineers, really fabulously incredible people, last son wanted to farm. So they expanded their operation when land prices were high, foreclosed upon. Son took it personally, took his own life. I tell you those stories because they obviously are still here. So when you ask me what I want, I want a day when nobody feels that despondent. I want a day when out in rural places there's unlimited, incredible opportunity to farm, to sell products locally, regionally, internationally, to create a whole new set of products from what had been considered waste, to continue to have cleaner burning fuels coming from agriculture. So that farms aren't just farms, but they are just an incredible economic development center. So that people can stay on the farm, so their kids have a chance to stay on the farm, so that their kids can work in a manufacturing facility in a small town where they can raise their kids, go to the same school if, or school similar to what they went to, teacher knows who they are, go to Friday night football games, kinds of experience my kids had. I'd like that for everybody, at least a choice.
0: All right, well, interesting stuff there from the NAFB convention. Folks, we're going to continue to bring you some great coverage, some great conversations from the National Association of Farm Broadcasters convention. But if you'd like to catch up on any of our past episodes from other conventions, meetings, and just general interviews we've had on the podcast, feel free to find us, globalagnetwork.com slash agnewsdaily. You can find all of our old episodes there Or you can always interact with us on social media at AgNewsDaily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mike, with that, should we let the people go?
2: Let's let them go.